Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership Podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership Podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey everyone, we've got a great show for you today. This week, our guest is Brian Tibbs from Ardeo Global, which is a Christian nonprofit focused on using cross-cultural teams of young adults to enter into communities and over the course of just a couple of years to plant new churches. Joining me in the studio are my friends and fellow leaders, Maria Hardiman, Bevelyn Thornton, and Jake Sullivan. Thanks for being here today, y'all. Thank you. We're talking about teams today, so I wanted to kind of start off with the question, when have you experienced great teams in your life, the teams where you really just have a great synergy and can get a lot of things done? Bevelyn, what about you? I think the greatest team I've been a part of was a marching band because everyone has to work together. Everyone has equal input, and you have a great leader, hopefully a great leader, in your band director that you have to follow. Jake? The job I've had that had the most uh, teamwork built into it was working in the kitchen. And we had a set playbook to go by. Everybody had their station and their role. And when somebody slacked up or messed up, you switched over to help them out. Mm -hmm. Maria, how about you? So I had the amazing opportunity of working with Ardeo Global. And that was the best team experience I've had so far, just because we were all at a place where we were able to recognize our weaknesses and our strengths and have the humility to say, hey, I need your help or, hey, can I help you in this way? So that was a cool opportunity for me to to work with them. Yeah, it's good to have someone who's actually been involved with the organization that we're talking about today. That's the first time we've had that so far. So Brian Tibbs is the person that we're interviewing today. He's the CEO at Ardeo Global, and Ardeo is a Christian nonprofit whose primary goal is to make disciples who make disciples. And they do this by sending missionary teams around the world to plant new churches. Since starting the organization, they've sent 360 long-term missionaries to more than 10 countries. They've planted 94 new churches and have led tens of thousands of people to become followers of Jesus. Brian lives with his wife, Jill, and three kids in Quito, Ecuador. And to that end, you may hear some life noise in the background, uh, but don't let that distract you from the great insight that Brian has to share with us today. Brian, welcome. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a blessing for me to to be with you here, here today, and I'm excited about it. Oh, well, I'm glad that you're able to join us. I wanted to start off by uh, hearing from you a little bit about the story behind Ardeo Global. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so my wife and I were uh, missionaries in, in Argentina, and we were responsible for uh, the finances and administration of lots of churches uh, throughout South America, but it was really an administrative job. And, and an opportunity came along to take over an organization called Extreme Missions, and I really didn't want to do it, but we really sensed God's leading and his calling to do it. And so I told my boss, okay, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, now we want to we want to work with extreme missions. And our first project was to 
finished the construction of a 20,000 square foot convention center, actually 60,000 square foot convention center, uh, which wasn't necessarily my passion, but uh, we did finish that project in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And then after that, we really wanted to develop a movement of church planting. And so we moved to Peru in 2009, and that's when we began deploying young adults in pairs, uh, one North American with one South American. In this case, it was an American with a Peruvian. And we sent them out on teams to plant churches. And so that's when we we started our, our church planting work. We call that 4040. And uh, the reason why we call it 4040 is because we our original goal was to have 40 Peruvians matched up with 40 Americans, man with man and woman with woman, send them out to plant churches. And when we got to 40 and 40, we decided we don't want to stop, but we didn't want to start calling it 43, 43 or 52, 52. Uh, the name 4040 just stuck. We've since sent 160 or 170 4040s uh, out to plant churches. And uh, as you said at the beginning, now we've planted 94 churches and and uh, we're beginning to branch out into even more countries now. So tell us a little bit about the name Ardeo. That's not a, a normal name that we see every day. What, what does Ardeo mean? What's, what's the meaning behind the organization's name? Yeah, great question. So Ardeo is actually a Latin word, uh, which means burning or on fire, or even another way to describe it would be passionate. Um, if you were to read the Bible in Latin, you would see uh, that when the burning bush uh, appeared before Moses, they would have used that word ardeo. Um, also in Acts, when they talk about the flaming uh, tongue of the Holy Spirit, they would have used the word ardeo. And so we wanted to use a word that uh, really encapsulated our passion and our purpose to set the world ablaze for Christ. Um, and we liked the fact that it was a Latin word so that it wasn't an English word or a Spanish word or some other active language so it could be neutral and it could fit with the second word of our of our name, which is global, that it would be uh, it would not be something that we'd have to translate in any language. So, uh, Ardeo Global, and the second word global is really encapsulates our passion to take people to mobilize people from the countries that that already have the gospel, such as the United States and Brazil is another example, and we want to send them to the ends of the earth. And so, our vision is not one of just local ministry and just district ministry or just country ministry, but our vision is truly a global view on seeing the Great Commission fulfilled. Absolutely. You started off by mentioning some South American countries as well as some North American countries. Are there other countries or other continents that you have taken this program to? Yes. Uh, so we actually started a very first, our very first church plant was in, in Ukraine. Um, and that happened literally with just the work of a team that was on the ground for two weeks. It was an amazing thing that God did. It wasn't some grand master plan. Uh, the week after our team left Ukraine, we had 200 people show up for church, which is a lot of people for a Ukrainian church. Um, we also did a partnership in Germany, uh, sent some 4040s over to Germany to plant a couple of churches there. And we are now looking at expanding into the Southeast Asia and, uh, and more in Europe as well. So a primary goal with the 4040 program is to enter into a town or a city, an area, and within two to three years have established a faith community there. Exactly. This is this is a, a major goal, but how do people, from your experience, tend to live differently than quote-unquote normal when they have this type of overarching purpose that's driving what they do? So I'm assuming you're talking about the members of the church planting team? Correct, yeah. 
Yeah, so it, it is it is an interesting thing that happens. We all we always say that our 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 end goal is to establish, as you said, faith communities, churches, discipleship communities. That's our end goal. But we also say another byproduct of that end goal is we end up developing extremely capable, skilled, trained leaders for the future of our church. And so I think one of the things that sets our people apart is their dedication to see the kingdom of God grow. And when they come into our organization, we really do our best to give them the the tools that they need, the training that they need to be able to accomplish their task. But there's another interesting dynamic that when they're on a team together, when one person is low, another person pulls them back up. When one person is maybe lacking in a certain skill or a certain uh, focus, there's somebody else on the team that can kind of fill that gap. And so the dynamic of working on a team really is special and unique, and it makes every member of the team more productive, even happier, more effective, more efficient in the things that they're trying to do. It's also interesting that, that when we put our teams together, and again, it's a, it's a bunch of single adults uh, with some leadership of married individuals, but you put all these people together, they live communally, and that changes the dynamic as well. You know, the, everybody matures. Most people say that when they come through our process of, of, of two years of doing church development, they mature far more than two years worth of maturity because of the things that they experience and the things that they learn and the things that they begin begin to do. So when someone comes out of our two-year process, they know what it means to put on a, a big event. They know what it means to disciple a new believer. They know what it means to preach. They know what it means to evangelize. They, don't, they know what it means. Uh, many of our 4040s who are not married have done considerable amount of marriage counseling, for example, because people come to them and, and look to them as as people of authority and people of, of, of knowledge and experience and uh, and ask them for their advice. So when the original team leaves after two or three years, what is it that makes the difference between the church that continues on as a strong community versus a church that becomes weaker without that original team? What is it yeah. that the team does that really makes a difference there? Great question. And, and, and honestly, that has been a learning process for us. We have, we have seen both scenarios. And in the beginning, uh, we are seeing some of our churches really struggle after the team left. And so we focused really purposefully on uh, how can we make this transition from missionary team to national leadership as smooth as possible and set these churches up to where they not can just maintain what has been built, but they can actually continue to grow. And so one of the major steps that we've done is we've broken up the process into three sections of eight months. Uh, That's two years total. In the first eight months, it's heavily evangelism, some discipleship. The second eight months, it's heavily discipleship and leadership development. The third eight months, we train our people to really, really focus on working your way out of a job. So we always say that the most successful missionary on earth is an unemployed missionary. And that always kind of catches people off guard. But the point that we're trying to make is successful missionaries replace themselves with competent, trained, and willing national leadership as soon as they possibly can. So in those last eight months of our work, they are focusing on becoming less and less visible up front, uh, less and less uh, taking on the primary responsibilities and more and more pushing their national leaders that they've been working with for two years into that first place 
leadership role so that when they leave, there actually really isn't any difference from one Sunday to the next except for the presence versus their their absence. Has that tended to happen? Is it something that happens as effectively as it sounds on paper, or have there been some difficulties in, in that process? Yeah, that's a great question. Every church has its own unique culture. And even though our people go through the exact same process and the same training and the same instruction, every church is different and unique. And still, some of our churches, after the team leaves, uh, most of them at least maintain uh, where they were when the team was done. Uh, many of them are continuing to grow, although there have been a few of them that have that have struggled after that 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 transition period and they've dropped back. However, most of them do recover uh, at least back to where they were when the when the team departed. There's just something about that process of okay, this is real now. We it is up to us, and and thankfully, in the last since about 2012. We've seen in almost every case, our churches have been able to at least get back to the point to where they were when the, when the team left, if not continue to grow and exceed the, those previous uh, levels of attendance or whatever measurement you'd look at. Well, I want to I move more specifically to the team dynamics, because as you mentioned, there are so many opportunities for growth, for leadership exercise, for, for all sorts of things. And I, want, I wanted to spend uh, a good chunk of the rest of this interview focused on kind of that inner team life. And my first question is, uh, the 20s are generally a more flexible time in life. Besides the flexibility that allows people to sign up for multiple years to go to another country to to do something that's not really that normal, what are some other positives that you see for people in this stage of life that make them a great fit at Ardeo? Yeah, so I've 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 pondered that and I've been asked that question before. And the reason why we specifically work with people in their 20s or even early, early 30s, there's lots of reasons. Number one, when they come to us, they're moldable. They, they don't have a bunch of life. I mean, some people could say they don't have a bunch of life experience, which perhaps that's true, but they also don't have a lot of, lot of life baggage. And when they come to you really as a clean slate, you can put them into a, a training program, into a process of, of developing them into the leaders that we want them to be. And by and large, they don't really buck against that. They don't, they have questions and stuff and that's normal and that's healthy and that's natural, but they don't have a a bunch of preconceived notions as to the way leadership should be done, the way evangelism should should be done. And that is a much easier group to work with than say, let's say we bring in groups of 40 year olds who have done this two or three times and every single one of them has a different way of doing it. Very hard to bring that together to make something cohesive and, and function. Second, you know, the people, we've been working primarily with millennials. We're now beginning to work with Generation Z, which are two very different generations, and we're, we're trying to learn uh, Generation Z. But people have, by and large, claimed that millennials are lazy. I have not seen that to be the case. If you give a millennial a specific objective if you give them the tools to accomplish that objective and you give them the training so that they know how to implement the tools, and if that objective lines up with their priorities in their life, uh, I've seen them work extremely hard and, and, and be very effective uh, at, at what they're doing. And I've seen people in their 20s accomplishing far more than maybe you could see in, in some other people that have more of that quote-unquote life experience. Um, I think also working on a team is a very powerful dynamic. You know, that old uh, kind of concept of sending 
one married couple, missionary couple out to some country in the bush somewhere. Uh, boy, I think that's an outdated model. I understood. I understand that that was necessary back in the day, but team uh, focused work, I think is just far more, far more effective and superior than just, just sending a couple of people out. Um, another thing that we've found that's interesting is forcing people to live in community and to work on a team in their 20s really prepares them for the next things that they have in life, mainly marriage. When you have to really become a lot more selfless by living in community and sharing space and your idea of clean is different than somebody else's idea of clean and your idea of getting up early and going to work is maybe a bad idea to somebody else, learning how to cooperate that environment really matures people and prepares them for later relationships when they have to get along with a spouse or a child or, or coworkers. And I think that that's been a very powerful uh, byproduct of what, what our people go through as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to I want to turn to the team dynamics in a second. But before we do that, I'd, I'd kind of like to get your thoughts on millennials versus Gen Z. There's a lot of people starting to write about Gen Z. I know millennials were the previously the most written about generation, and I'm sure Gen Z will be even more written about in the generation after that, even more so. Um, so what are some what are some thoughts on the differences and maybe some some leadership thoughts to think about when it comes to the differences between these two? Yeah. So one of the things that I have been reading about Generation Z, and, and to be frank, it's it's such a new generation. There's not a lot out there, at least that I've seen yet, uh, that's really authoritative. There's a lot of speculation, and there's, there's kind of some things of how this generation is going to develop. But one of the things that I've noticed in several different things that I've read is that Generation Z is kind of defiantly not millennials. Um, they've, they've kind of watched millennials and they've kind of seen millennials be so highlighted and so talked about, like you said, that they're like, you know, we want, we want to kind of shape our own, our own image. And, and so they are kind of pendulum swinging a little bit away from, from the millennials. Um, I am, what I'm reading is that they are going to be a little bit more, um, stationary, whereas millennials are just from this thing to that thing to this adventure to that and, and not tied down to a certain job or anything. And from what I'm seeing is Generation Z wants to be a little bit more focused, which which is interesting and, and from a missional perspective is exciting uh, because we want to develop missionaries and then retain them and, and put them into leadership positions uh, to be able to continue to expand. One of the things that's a challenge for our organization is retaining organizational memory. So if a, if a person comes through and does their two years and then they go back off to college or get married or go off and do some career or something, we've spent a lot of time, energy, and money developing that person. It'd be really nice if more of them would stay and, and, and continue on to another assignment and never, another part of the organization. So to think about Generation Z maybe kind of having more of that mentality – I think that would be a real positive thing for our organization. Sure thing. So uh, back to the team work and the team formation, there are a ton of variables when people don't know each other are thrown together in a team. And I don't want to say that flippantly. I'm sure there's a lot more thought than just being thrown together. But you add the multicultural element makes things even more complex. What are some, some of the keys that you found to making teams like this work well? Yes, very good question. And just like every culture has a different – or every church has a different culture, every team's got a different culture because each member of the team shapes and molds uh, the direction of the team. And so you do have to put quite a bit of thought 
into putting together a, a team. Now, oftentimes we don't have 50 people to choose from to create five teams. We may have 20 people to choose from to, to create two teams, for example. So we have to, we have limitations on, on how much we can mix and match. So there is a certain element of yes, throwing a team together and you can't, you can't predict everything. You can't even get everything right. Uh, but we do try to create a mix of introverts and extroverts. We try to create a mix of people who are strong kind of type A personalities versus those who take a back seat. Because the truth is a team of all type A's is not doomed for, is not destined for, for greatness probably. And, and the same could be said about a team full of uh, extreme introverts is, is not going to get kind of the big splash stuff done either. So there needs to be a, a dynamic mix of those. We also try to split the genders as evenly as possible. So a, a full-strength team for us is five pairs. So it would be three of one gender and two of the other. It's also common for us to have two and two, uh, four four pairs. And, and that's important because if you, if you have a team all of males or a team all of females, then you'll walk into their church and you'll see that the male team has a lot more males in their church and the female team has a lot more females in their church. People are... are are drawn to people of their own gender. They're able to speak into the problems that people have in their day-to-day lives um, in a way that maybe somebody of, the, of their gender is not able to do. On the intercultural aspect, that makes things well, – the word we use for that is makes things messy, but it's a, it's a good messy. It's another element of maturing someone. If you live with someone from another culture for two years, you will be able to completely and thoroughly understand – the worldview that that person was raised in. And you can see the world in a whole new way. You can see it as an American, you can see the world the way an American sees the world. And if your partner is a Peruvian, you can see the world as a Peruvian sees the world. And when you have those two perspectives, that really enriches life in a way that somebody who doesn't have that experience just, just can't understand. So what, what would you say are the most common things that team members need to be aware of in order to avoid or manage conflict? And I think this could probably um, be applicable not just with 40-40 teams, but for uh, anyone on a team anywhere. Yeah, we spend a significant amount of time training on, on conflict resolution, on how to fight fair is another comp- a little workshop that we do. And just in communication and all those kinds of things. I think one of the most powerful lessons that we have and that we try to really drill into our people is when, when you have conflict, everybody needs to come to – ultimately needs to come to the conclusion that the person with whom I have the conflict is still a person of good intentions. If you're talking about somebody on your team, ask yourself, is this person – just like to their core, a bad person. Hopefully the answer to that is going to be no. And when you come to that conclusion that this person does not have bad intentions, that opens up our minds to be able to being able to, to really try to seek to understand where they're coming from. And if we can change the posture from you're wrong, you're an idiot, and I'm going to fix you to let me understand where you're coming from, that changes the mood, it changes the demeanor of everybody involved, and very quickly, almost always, we come to a, a positive, peaceful resolution. What are some characteristics that you look for when you're looking to maybe delegate certain leadership tasks or leadership positions? Good question. What are some characteristics I'm looking for to give people leadership? Well, I read a book by Colin Powell. his autobiography called Soldier. And the book was like three inches thick. And the only thing that I really took out of that three inches of reading was his definition of loyalty. And I have 
repeated this over and over, and I think this is for me the biggest thing. We, we look for three things when we're interviewing people for any position, but specifically for leadership. Uh, and the number one uh, thing is loyalty. Now, somebody can hear that and say, oh, man, that just sounds like oppressive or imperial or whatever. But let me explain that. The second one is quality of spirit. Uh, what's their spirit like? What, when they walk in the room, how does it affect kind of the, the, the spirit of everyone else in the room? And then third, and intentionally in third, and I would even say way down the list in third place, is capacity or ability. If they have loyalty and if they have quality of spirit, that, that ability one we can work with. If, if they're lacking ability in a certain area or lacking a skill, we can work with that. However, if someone comes to us with loads of ability but they have poor quality of spirit and no loyalty, there's not really anything I can do with that person. On the loyalty front, our definition of loyalty is behind closed doors, let's fight, let's argue, let's put forth our opinions, let's challenge each other. Obviously, always with respect, but let's let's throw down and, and let's chew on the topic or the issue or the challenge that, we, that we're facing today. And, and then we're going to come to a conclusion and we're going to make a decision. The leader of whatever that scenario is, is the one that ultimately needs to make the decision. Now, he may take the opinion of someone else in the room, but he ultimately or she has the, has the ultimate decision. When we walk out from behind closed doors, loyalty means that we stand shoulder to shoulder and we all defend the decision as if it were our own. And if we can accomplish that, there's nothing that can stop us. That's a good word. Uh, you had mentioned earlier in the interview uh, the role of, of couples on these teams. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, a married couple is essential. At least one married couple is essential. A full-strength team for us has a married uh, pastor uh, couple, pastoral couple, and then there's a team support couple as well. And those those people provide security, maturity, stability, maybe would be the best word, uh, to a team of mostly single adults. And, and that's a critical element. They also add something to the church dynamic where in some cultures, you're not taking real seriously until you are married. So you're not really an adult until you are married. And so having uh, married people on the team kind of helps for that initial impression of like, okay, there's some serious people on this team. There's some mature people on this team um, that helps in that respect. But it also is important. You know, we really value discipleship in our organization. In fact, it's one of our core values. But we really believe that men should disciple men and women should disciple women. So if we had a team leader that was single, uh, then we would have a, a big gap on, on being able to disciple the women on that team or, or if it was a female single to disciple the men on that team. So just having a nice balance for discipleship is really important. And, and again, the, uh, the gravitas of having some married people on the team to help, help with that stability. So give the listeners a quick pitch for the type of person you're looking for and why they should consider Ardeo Global as part of their future. Yeah, so our, uh, the people that we really are targeting are anybody from 18 to 35 years old, uh, married or single, either one, male or female, either one. The most important thing for us is that you sense some sort of a leading from God, not some emotion or some book or some leader that, that encouraged you, but that you feel God has given you a draw to the nations, that he has given you a draw to fulfill the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples in the nations. Um, if, if God has placed that on your heart, 
then we're interested in talking with you. Beyond that, you know, as I talked about before, your quality of spirit, we want people who are, who are on fire for the Lord, who, who when they walk into a room, they just are, are uplifting and, and in a positive force. Uh, people who understand that concept of, of loyalty, let's, let's fight behind closed doors and let's stand shoulder to shoulder when we're in public. And then, and then down the list again is, is the ability. So if somebody says, oh, I couldn't be a missionary, I say, man, God doesn't call the equipped. He quit, equips the called. If your call is there, if you feel like God is drawing you for whatever reason, and if you've got a, a spirit of adventure, um, then, then we want to talk with you. We want to see what, what, what God might, might do with you. And you might be surprised the kinds of people that have come through and, been, and have been very successful in planting churches. Someone might think, well, I'm not a great preacher or I'm not this boisterous out front influencer. We need those, but we need people who are also in the behind the scenes and who are able to sit down one-on-one uh, with someone who's going through a crisis and just walk them through that, that phase of their life as well. Thanks for sharing that. Before you go, I have a few final questions that are meant to inspire us toward better leadership. So are you ready? Yeah. All right. What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Lesson saying or experience. You know, I, I, every day, uh, I hope to take something out of that day. And, and if one day is the same as the previous, then I would probably start to get bored. Um, so I, I, I'm still, I'm still learning. Uh, I would say that as a leader, you need to really have yourself grounded, really firmly placed in what it is that you know that you're supposed to be doing. Because as a leader, uh, we take a lot of shots. We take a lot of criticism. We take a lot of double guessing. And, and you have to be solidly grounded in what God has asked you to do and not waver from that. That doesn't mean don't listen uh, to input and adjust. Certainly we need to be able to do that, but the, keep the main things, the main things. If you're confident and, and secure in what God has asked you to do, you really need to make that immovable. And, uh, and then everything else around the edges that you, you can, you can work with, but just keep yourself really grounded, keep yourself grounded spiritually, but also keep yourself grounded practically in the things that God has, has asked of you as a leader. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? A leader is, uh, there's a lot of different descriptors, bold, tough, um, not tough in the sense of mean, but just you need to have an inner toughness, an inner strength that can only come from your relationship with God that keeps you firm in what you're supposed to be doing. So bold, a boldness, a toughness. I think another word would be intuitive. You need to be intuitive. If your people are beginning to feel stress in some way and you don't recognize it, it may correct itself when it's too late. So as a leader, you need to be able to perceive those things uh, that are happening and address them before they become a, a crisis for your people or for you or for, or for your organization. And the third one, I, I would say you need to be able to, to see the future uh, maybe in a way that nobody else sees it or, or, or before anybody else sees it. You know, Steve Jobs says people don't know what they want until you show it to them. Uh, that's kind of a crude way of, of saying that you need to keep your eye on, uh, uh, you know, the next two hills in front of you, the next five hills in front of you, rather than just the one you're climbing right now. Um, I think that's critical for a leader to be able to kind of 
perceive where the organization needs to be heading or could be heading in order to be more effective. I like that. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Uh, One that I like, I can't even remember which book it came from. They painted this area of a bunch of people in a forest chopping down trees. The leader climbed the, uh, one of the trees and looked up and he yelled out, wrong forest. Uh, so what he was trying to say is, you know, we could be really busy uh, cutting down trees, but we just need to make sure that we are in the right forest cutting down trees. Otherwise, what we're doing is, is in vain. Connected to that, perhaps, uh, what book would you recommend to leaders? Yeah, a couple of books. I, and I know this is not a, a, a new book, but it is a book that every time I go back and read it, I just say, wow. Uh, this guy, this guy knows what he's talking about. Jim Collins uh, wrote several books. My favorite is Good to Great, and what he did is he compared different organizations that were merely good. Now they were good; they were multinational corporations, and they were doing good work. Um, and then he looked at companies that just really stood out and that had become great, just top of their field, top of their industry. And he studied uh, what made those companies go from a, being a good company to becoming a great company. And the concepts that he has in there, like like the flywheel and, and different things, are things that I put into practice. I try to put into practice anyway in our in our organization. And kind of the main one is good is the enemy of great. Don't be satisfied with good. Another book that I, I recommend for spiritual, I guess, renewal is uh, Heavenly Man from Brother Yoon. Um, he's a Chinese church leader, um, and he has a testimony of how God miraculously moved in his life. And I read that whenever I, I need a, a faith booster. It's just a, such a powerful book. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of books that I'd recommend. I'll stick with those two. Those two are, are, are good ones. If you could get every single listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would it be? Man, don't conform. Just like, you know, Romans twelve twelve says, let your mind be renewed. Don't, don't accept the current reality. Push the envelope. Um, think bigger. Challenge yourself. Always strive for improvement. Always look at what is what is going on in your organization and trying to find the weak points or the choke points or the the the, the bottlenecks and, and working on those. And don't don't do something the same way twice. There's always room for improvement. I, that's what I would say. And we end every interview with this final arbitrary but insightful question as as a general life principle if you could only choose one is it better to ask why or why not (laughs) i love that question as a leader as a leader at least with my personality it has to be why not we do focus on our why in the organization we ask that question a lot what's our why why are we doing what we're doing but as a leader one of the things that i found and, and we need as leaders we need people around us that say, no, this can't be done. Uh, but as a leader, one of our primary jobs is to say, why? Why can't it be done? Why not? Um, because if we, you know, I have a saying that I, I repeat always, if we let the lawyers and the accountants tell us what to do, we'll never leave our house. Because it's a dangerous world out there. There's lots of risk. There's lots of liability. Um, I, I, I'm not making a political statement here, but I have a little plaque on my desk uh, that's a quote from Ronald Reagan that says it can be done because everybody in the world is telling us why something can't be done. I just don't buy that. It can be done. Let's, let's really dig deep and let's see how God can make this impossible task uh, possible by, by leveraging us to, to reach higher. So why not? 
Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Where can people go to find out more about Ardeo Global and your work? Yeah, I really appreciate this opportunity to just kind of share with you. It's been a lot of fun. Um, Ardeo.org, that's A-R-D-E-O dot O-R-G. You can email us at info at Ardeo.org. And uh, if anybody who's been listening to this and says, hey, that sounds like the organization we want to work with, send us an email. We'd love to talk. All righty. Thank you so much, Brian. You bet. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I hope you found today's interview valuable. We'll be back on Friday to discuss the interview and share some of our key takeaways with you. If you want to share your own thoughts on what you heard today or leave other feedback for the show, email us at community at lifeasleadership.com. And if you think today's show could be helpful to someone else who cares about becoming a better leader, go ahead and share it with them. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.